And now I would like to draw your attention to the Lord Jesus. Open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. And uh, as everybody else has said, this is my last time up here. So as everybody else has said, I very much want to thank the musicians, the great chapel band. The music here is always wonderful, and especially to the Gettys. Um, It has been such a means of grace to my own heart and soul to sing with you. Revelation chapter 5. I'd like to read the whole chapter. Then I saw in the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll with writing on the inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. And I cried and cried because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. Then one of the elders said to me, Stop crying! Look! The lion from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has been victorious so that he may open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw one like a slaughtered lamb standing in the middle of the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. He came and took the scroll out of the right hand of the one seated on the throne. When he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked. And heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands, plus thousands of thousands. They said with a loud voice, The Lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say, blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So reads the words of the living God. It is an act of worship just to read it, isn't it? Let's pray together, shall we?
Our Father in God, we thank you for this, for this morning. And we thank you for our great Savior, your Son. We are thankful today that he did not regard his equality with you as a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. That he has come to us in the form of a bondservant. That he has lived a life of faithful obedience, running his race perfectly. We give you praise and thanks these days that that obedience took him to the cross for our sins. We are thankful that he was buried in the grave three days, verifying the validity of his death. We give you praise and thanks that three days later, our Father, you raised him from the dead. We are thankful this morning that 40 days later, he ascended into heaven and was there invested with universal sovereignty as the Son of Man. And we are thankful from that place he has poured forth the promised Holy Spirit. The beginnings of the new creation. And so it is, Father, with a measure of confidence that we come and ask you for your blessing upon us as we open your word. You have given to us the gift of the Spirit whose burden it is to glorify Jesus and that has been the theme and the intention of this entire conference. We ask now specifically at this moment that we would know something of your Spirit's work in a powerful way as we seek to approach the magnificence of this text. I pray, O oh Lord and God, for each man and woman here I ask, O oh Lord and God, that in a way that far exceeds what any preacher could ever do, that they would hear your voice, speaking directly to them, calling them to the responses that would be appropriate to this, your word. And we promise now at the outset to give to you all of the praise, all of the glory, all of the adoration for it. Take control of our meeting now, Father, we pray. Amen. Noah was a drinker. Abraham was a liar. Sarah was a manipulator. Lot was a compromiser. Jacob was a deceiver. Job was arrogant. Moses was hot-tempered. Joshua was unwise. Gideon was idolatrous. Samson was lustful. Eli was passive. Saul was insecure. David was violent. Solomon was hedonistic. Elijah was given to self-centeredness. Jonah was given to racism. Isaiah was given to evil speaking. Jeremiah was given to complaining. Mary was the stereotypical stage mother, seeking to force her son into the limelight before his time. Matthew was the unethical IRS agent, exploiting his own people for financial profit. Simon was the calculating zealot, waiting to put a knife in the back of the nearest Roman. Martha was the compulsive homemaker, utterly driven by a busyness that left her with no time for devotion. 
Thomas was the proverbial doubter, refusing to yield himself to any positive expression of faith. Philip was the tight-fisted accountant, paralyzed by his inability to exercise any vision beyond his own ledger sheets. James and John were the neighborhood bullies, the sons of thunder, if you recall, notorious for being both unduly explosive and ambitious. And then, of course, there was Peter, consistently inconsistent, emotionally erratic, plagued with a profound vulnerability to the tyranny of public approval. And then finally we arrive at the Apostle Paul, Christianity's big gun. An intolerant type A leader when considering the failings of John Mark. A quick-tempered name-caller when standing before the high priest. A man in dread of speaking the gospel when facing Jewish opposition in Corinth. Contrary, friends, to what we have often been told, often as children... There is no hall of fame in the Bible. There is no catalog of superheroes. The plain fact of the matter is if you are on the hunt for a hero to honor unconditionally, you'll always be disappointed with the men and women of the Bible. Because in the end, not one of them has ever been worthy of the task to which God has called them and for which he used them. You heard Dr. MacArthur read it on Wednesday night. How does the Apostle Paul say it? God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Now, of course, I think every one of us here, we know this to be true of ourselves. We must also appreciate the fact that it is simultaneously true of people like Moses and Abraham and David and John the Baptist. Not one of them has ever been worthy that is, fit with such an inner ethical worthiness so as to merit the right to serve the living God. The Bible does not resort to hagiography, dear friends. It paints its people honestly as they really are, warts and all. And there is a reason why the Bible does this, you see. It's because it might relentlessly point our attention ultimately to the one perfect hero, the only worthy one has seen here now in Revelation 5 the one worthy to assume a task of incalculable importance. Now, are you mindful of the setting in chapter 5? Because really that forces us to be uh, in touch with the setting of chapter 4. Let me see if I can illustrate this for you. Uh, You've been to the airport here in Burbank, I flew in from Portland. It's all the same at all the airports. You know what it's like to look through those giant plate glass windows. And so when you walk up to one of those windows and you look outside of it, what do you see? Well, planes taking off, planes landing. People with headphones and walkie-talkies scurrying around in hurried movements, making confusing signaling gestures with their hands. Cars and trucks of various shapes and sizes simultaneously moving in every direction at different speeds. From where you stand and from what you see, it is a maze of chaotic motion. You can't make sense of it. But then, someone invites you up to the control tower. And suddenly, from that lofty perspective, 
all of the motion that had seemed so random and without meaning is now seen to be operating with distinct coordination and purpose. Elevation has resulted in illumination. And that's exactly what chapter 4 is. One with a voice like a trumpet says, Come up here, John. Make sense of all the chaos that you have seen to be going on in chapters 2 and 3. Begin to interpret things from this vantage point. That's the exhortation of chapter 4. But chapter 4 and 5 are vitally connected. They actually comprise one vision divided into two parts. What's the relationship between the two parts? Well, we could say it like this. The first part is to the second part what a stage setting is to a stage drama. In other words, while chapter 4 serves to set the backdrop for the drama, the real drama itself is what unfolds in chapter 5. And did you note, it begins with a challenge that is cosmic. Verse 2, I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. Where is there a human being so qualified as to be the executor of the eternal purposes of God concerning ultimate judgment and final vindication? Or in the symbolism of the vision here, who is worthy to slit the seals of the scroll, thereby converting its contents into reality? Who is worthy enough to inaugurate the final purposes of God? The cosmic challenge is issued. Notice the forthcoming response, verses 3 and 4. They reveal an inadequacy that is universal. An inadequacy that is universal, verse 3. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even to look in it. Notice that he says the very same thing in the next verse. No one was found worthy to open the scroll or even to look in it. And John, dear friends, as you read here, he begins to weep. He begins to break down. Not because his appetite for eschatological tidbits will not be satiated, but because he understands the implications of this universal inadequacy, the potential abortion of God's plan for ultimate judgment and salvation. If the scroll is not opened, its contents will not come to pass. But then, suddenly, in verses 5 through 7, a declaration is made. Stop weeping, John. There is a worthy one, a king that is qualified. One unlike all of the others, the one prophesied throughout the Old Testament, the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David, he has triumphed. And so John looks up to see this king. But what does he observe? That the destiny of the human race has been taken up in the nail-pierced hands of a slaughtered lamb. He has triumphed, the angel tells him. That's why he's able to slit the seals and open the scroll. Now, over whom or what did he triumph? John is not told, not yet. For the time being, however, it is enough for John to know of the fact of his triumph and the particular manner in which it was accomplished. So how did this lion triumph? In a most unexpected way. In a way, dear friends, that is nothing less than paradoxical. 
It is the great surprise of the gospel. The power of God in the weak and foolish thing. This is where we began on Wednesday night from 1 Corinthians 1 and 2. That the power of God is in the weak and foolish thing. The power of God is in the weak and foolish thing. The gospel will always be foolish. Always weak. And if ever you get to a place of making the gospel palatable and cool and sophisticated, you lose the foolishness of the gospel and you lose the power of the gospel. This is the paradox, dear friends, of God's purpose, that his power is released in weak and foolish things. You see, one expects a lion to hurt. One expects a lion to devour, to overpower. This vicious conflict, however, was not waged and won by ferocity, but by humility. The lion conquers by becoming a lamb. It was St. Augustine who said it like this, Proud man would have died had not a lowly God found him. Oh, now to be sure, dear friends, he is a lion. A lion who, according to the rest of Revelation, will display his ferocity. Who will return on a white war steed, wearing a robe dipped in blood. A sword emerging from his mouth, indicating that he will overpower, that he will devour, that he will devastate. C.S. Lewis is right at this point. He is not a tame lion. He is not a teddy bear. He is not a therapist. He is not one of many versions of a savior by which all people will ultimately find their way to eternal life. He is the only worthy one, the exclusively worthy one, who now alone bears in his hand the final destiny of the human race, a prerogative he earned as a lamb in the triumph of his sacrificial death. And as a consequence of that, my dear friends, now what do we see? As a reaction, as a response, as a consequence to this, what do we now see? No sooner is this scroll taken up by Jesus Christ than this outburst of celestial worship explodes. It is one of the greatest scenes of universal adoration anywhere recorded. And did you notice as we read it how it is recorded for us? From verse 8 through the end of the chapter, this worship progressively intensifies in three concentric circles that correspondingly expand the number of worshipers involved. In verses 8 through 10, the inner circle of angelic beings respond to the Lamb in worship. Then in verses 11 and 12, the outer circle of angelic beings respond to the Lamb in worship. Finally, in verses 13 and 14, this crescendo of worship becomes cosmic with every living being in every place declaring the all-surpassing glory of God and of the Lamb. It is this unbroken radius of praise coming from the entirety of the created world. Worship, I would remind you, worship set in motion, precipitated by the Lamb who has taken the scroll out of the hand of God. Now, what I would like to do is I would like to take a bit of a closer look and get a little closer and then even a little more closer. Notice, firstly, the inner circle that responds in worship. Verse 8. When he, that is the Lamb, took the scroll... The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. 
Now, friends, I don't have time to prove my point to you. You have to take my word for it at this point. I believe that these four living creatures and the 24 elders are the highest order of angelic beings. We find them as being distinct from the community of the redeemed that appears in chapter 7, as our sister read for us earlier today. The highest order of angelic beings, evidenced in part by the fact that they are nearest to the throne of God. In chapter 4, they worship God. Now, here in chapter 5, they still only worship God. You say, but Art, right here, the text says that they fall before the Lamb. So, do they only worship God, or do they worship God and the Lamb? And the answer is, yes. This Lamb, I would remind you, stands at the center of the throne, doesn't he? Now, my dear friends, nowhere in the Revelation does John ever explicitly say Jesus is God. But, of course, this makes perfect sense. Uh, Writing in a vastly polytheistic culture, John does not want to risk any commitment to monotheism. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. At the same time, however, John affirms the full deity of this lamb by making him the object of worship that is due only to God and no other. In fact, it is very interesting to consider how this entire scene of worship is structured. In the first two hymns, back in chapter 4, God is worshipped by this heavenly court. In the next two hymns, here in chapter 5, the Lamb is worshipped by this heavenly court. Finally, in the last hymn of chapter 5, both God and the Lamb are worshipped together. In fact, from this point on in the book of Revelation, it becomes very common for John to speak of this throne as the throne of God and of the Lamb. It is an underpinning to our understanding of Trinitarianism. But there is clearly one God. In fact, it's kind of amusing how John works so hard to protect this. In the last chapter of the Revelation, when John sees the new Jerusalem, he says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. And we say, now wait a minute, John. God bless you, you're excited, but you got your grammar wrong. You're talking about God and the Lamb. God and the Lamb, that means you need to use a plural pronoun. Their servants will serve them. But John who is very sensitive to the theological implications of language, would rather defy the rules of grammar than jeopardize a monotheistic understanding of God. Nowhere does John ever refer to God and the Lamb as they. The God of Christianity is one God. At the same time, however, John distinguishes God from the Lamb. Here, like God, the Lamb is worshipped. The angelic beings of this inner circle fall down before the Lamb. Moreover, John writes, notice, each one had a harp. Now, my friends, for many of us here, this is an image that has long been distorted in our imaginations. Uh, We tend to think of people in heaven sitting off by themselves on pillowy clouds, wearing long white togas with harps on their laps, quietly plucking strings in a kind of esoteric tune for all of eternity. Blink. 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 Gee, I can't wait for that. That's not the idea here. You need to appreciate in the cultural milieu of the Bible, a harp, a kitaron, was more like a guitar. 
And in the Old Testament, a harp is always associated with joy and gladness. Just look it up. Always associated with celebration. In fact, to illustrate this negatively, when the people of Israel are taken into Babylonian captivity and they cross the river that serves as the demarcation between their land and the land of exile, the psalmist says, we hung up our harps. Our captors asked us, sing us one of the songs of Zion, but how can we sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? Psalm 137. We, we, we hung them up. We put them away. No joy. No gladness. No celebration. That was the imagery associated with harps. Now, friends, what would the equivalent be for us? A banjo, perhaps? I mean, think of a banjo. How can you listen to a banjo for very long and remain sad? Now, now I, I need, for the sake of my own reputation, I admit I am totally self-absorbed at this point, but for the sake of clarification, I must say, um, I do not like country western music. In fact, thank you. I've obviously found my people here. <clears throat> in fact, that's not an altogether accurate statement. I totally and in every way altogether despise country western music. But when someone begins to pluck the strings of a banjo and it gets faster and louder and faster and louder and faster and louder and a second joins in and a third, my foot starts tapping and my fingers begin to snap. Now, for you, maybe it's a pipe organ that arouses that same kind of response. <laughs> At the end of the day, I really don't care. The point is, harps mark this out to be a scene of overwhelming joy. A festivity of spectacularly happy music. Precisely because God's purposes for the universe will now certainly come to pass. His purposes for judgment and vindication. What's more, notice that these angelic beings are holding golden bowls full of incense. Now, if you're like me, you look at this and say, how is it possible for them to be playing a harp at the same time to be holding golden bowls full of incense? And what I say to you is, welcome to the world of apocalyptic. Doesn't have to make sense, but that's another story for another day. Um, what is this incense? Well, again, friends, it comes out of the culture of the Old Testament. In the ancient world, this may gross you out a bit, but in the ancient world, people didn't bathe as frequently as we do today. I mean, they certainly didn't cover themselves with things like um, axe or degree or secret or right guard or men in dry stick, whatever you happen to prefer. They didn't have these kinds of things. So if you didn't want your home to stink, you'd burn incense. Now, today, in our culture, if you're really posh, I mean, a really sophisticated postmodern person, you drive to the Valencia Town Center, you buy an incense stick, you light it in your living room, and everybody thinks you're really cool. But in the ancient world, you see, this wasn't a matter of being cool or posh or postmodern. It was a matter of self-defense. I mean, it was a way of creating a pleasing atmosphere. And so, for example, the psalmist says, May my prayer be set before you like incense. Well, you can connect the dots. An analogy is being drawn. Let my prayers be a sweet-smelling savor. 
And here, as you can see, they're characterized in that very same way. Why? Because of their content. Because of the content of these prayers. You say, well, what is the content of these prayers? Keep your finger here and turn to chapter 6. In verse 9, as the seals are being broken, we're told, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those slaughtered because of God's word and the testimony they had. These are the martyrs of the gospel. Verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O Lord, holy and true. How long until you judge and avenge our blood from those who live on the earth? It is a cry, you see, for judgment and vindication that God would defend the honor of his reputation for justice by judging the persecutors of his people. And it's why here now in chapter 5, the mention of these prayers in this scene of worship makes perfect sense. They're mentioned here as a sweet-smelling savor to God because they have requested the very thing that Jesus Christ now sets in motion by the taking up of this scroll. And so, in verse 9, they sang a new song. Now, throughout the Old Testament, friends, new songs are sung in response to new expressions of redemption. Watch this pattern. For example, in Exodus 15, after the Jewish people are delivered from Egyptian captivity, the first Exodus, a new song is sung. Then in Isaiah 42, in anticipation of Israel's deliverance from Babylonian captivity, the second Exodus, as it were, another new song is sung. Here now, once again, a new song is sung. And listen to its contents. Watch now. Hear the lyrics of heaven. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals. Why? Because... And then he introduces three reasons. First, because you were slaughtered. There's the event itself. Second... And you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's the meaning of the event. Third, verse 10, you made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign on the earth. That's the consequence of the event. You are worthy. Why? Three things. The event, the meaning of the event, the consequence of the event. Now together... These constitute the worthiness of Jesus Christ to take the scroll out of the hand of God and to open its seals. But again, dear friends, I beg you to understand, what is the imagery being conveyed here? What took place on the evening of the original Passover? First, a lamb was slaughtered and its blood placed on the lintel and doorpost of each Jewish home. That was the event. Secondly, what is the meaning of that event? The purchase of the firstborn for God. You see, as was the case with the Egyptian firstborn, the firstborn in Israel were just as guilty and deserving of death. They were not saved because they were more righteous. They were not saved because they were more spiritual. They were saved because for them, God had made a provision of atonement. They too were liable to the death blow of the angel, but they were purchased, as it were, by the blood of an unblemished sacrifice, a slaughtered lamb. All to what consequence? That thirdly, to quote the language of Exodus 19 itself, out of all the nations of the earth, they would become the personal possession of God, a kingdom and priests. Exodus 19. 
Now, do you see the point? What was prefigured in the events of the Exodus is now realized in the redemption secured by Jesus Christ. Firstly, the event itself. His blood was shed as a sacrificial lamb. Secondly, the meaning of the event. With his blood, he purchased for God people out of all the nations of the earth. Thirdly, the consequence of that event, that these same people would be a kingdom and priests, that these people will share with the lamb the royal right to rule and the priestly right to draw near to God in intimacy. My friends, this is exactly how the book of Revelation begins. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us to be a kingdom and priests. At the outset, John tells us this is the ultimate and final exodus. But I want you to take now an even closer look at this hymn. It merits an even closer scrutiny. It's worth it, so hang in there with me. Of the five hymns that appear in this vision, it is the longest. Structurally, it sits in the center place. Arguably, then, it is the most important. But now, take note of its theme. What are they singing about in heaven? What are the lyrics of heaven? It is the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But now, to be more specific, my friends, I'd like to draw your attention to three features of this sacrifice. Firstly, very obviously, it is a bloody sacrifice. Not that there is anything mystical about the blood of Jesus. When the New Testament speaks about the blood of Jesus, it is a metonym for his life violently and sacrificially outpoured. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered. You hear that graphic language. And you redeemed people for God by your blood. He was slain. He was slaughtered. He died a violent death. This is a bloody sacrifice. His life was outpoured. And of course, as you know, we're told in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Secondly, notice it is an effectual sacrifice. That is to say, by the means of this sacrifice, something very specifically transpired. Look at it, friends. It's right there in the text. Something was actually accomplished. No hypothetical discussion about what may have potentially been the result of his death. Only the assertion that something really happened in this bloody sacrifice. Namely, that a group of people was purchased for God, men and women from every tribe and language and people and nation. Every tribe, language, people, nation. Tribe, language, people, nation. Now, those four words are synonyms. So why doesn't the song simply say, people from every nation? In fact, seven times in the Revelation, John specifically uses this same fourfold phrase tribe, language, people, nation. Tribe, language, people, nation. Four nouns in the place of one. Now, that is no accident. I have a book right to the right of my desk on all the apocalyptic literature that was written from about 100 BC until about 100 AD when apocalyptic was the rage. And what you discover as you read the literature of that period is that four is often used as a number to refer to all the nations of the earth. 
Let me see if I can illustrate it. It's a bit silly, but I think it gets at the point. Imagine the process of gathering up your laundry. Uh, you go into your bedroom and your bathroom and you, 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 you gather up all your washcloths and towels and you take them over to the washing machine. And then in a second trip, you gather up all your dirty clothes and you take them over to the washing machine. Then in a third trip, you gather up all of your children's dirty clothes and you take them over to the washing machine. The point is obvious. The more people, the more trips. But there's another way of doing it. You can spread out a bed sheet, pile all of the clothes and the linens on top of it, then grab all four corners, pull them toward the center, and make a sack out of that sheet in order to contain everything. In apocalyptic literature, the use of fours is often imagined as the picking up of all the nations of the earth by its four corners so that nothing is missed. And here, remembering that this has Passover connotations, it was not just Israel that was purchased by the blood of the sacrificial lamb, as was the case with the original Passover. All the nations are now in view. And yet, notice very carefully, friends, at the same time, there is specificity here. What was purchased by the blood of Christ is not every tribe, language, people, and nation, but human beings out of every tribe and language and people and nation. Notice that little word from. That's what we call a partitive preposition. Notice not all nations, but people out of every tribe and language and people and nation. In other words, not all without exception, rather all without distinction. This is a universal sacrifice in the sense that there is not one nation exempted from this purchase. It is a particular sacrifice in the sense that what is in view is not all the nations collectively, but all the nations representatively. Now you need to understand this, young men and women, because this is what they are singing about in heaven. This is what they're singing about in heaven right now. In his sacrifice, Jesus Christ got what he paid for, human beings purchased for God out of every tribe and language and people and nation. It is an effectual sacrifice. You say, well, Art, it's always the same with you guys. You're always preoccupied with these little seemingly insignificant things. Who Who cares? I mean, what does it matter, this little detail? People out of every tribe and tongue and nation, language. What does it matter? I'll tell you for whom it matters. It matters profoundly for those of you here in this room who are planning to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. It matters to those of you who are called of God to spend your life taking the gospel to people who have never heard the name of Jesus Christ, whether to the Sudan, whether to Tunisia, whether to Colombia, whether to Zimbabwe, whether to China. It matters, my dear friends, because it assures you, even through the darkest seasons of great discouragement in the ministry, that you will have not given your life on a fool's mission. That there are human beings out of every tribe and tongue and nation and people who have been purchased by Jesus Christ. This is the life verse of William Carey. 
It is the reason why he went to India when people said, you are out of your mind. He said, God has people there. People have been purchased for Christ there. You serious about the gospel? You serious about taking the gospel to the ends of the earth? You want to hold on to this for everything you have. I endure everything for the sake of the elect, Paul says. There are people for whom Jesus Christ has died. People that have been purchased. It is an effectual sacrifice. It is a bloody sacrifice. Third, note, friends, that it is a purposeful sacrifice. There was intention to it. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God. For God. You know, young men and women, the way we talk about salvation... The way we often sing about salvation, one would think that the primary reason we are saved is for ourselves. My salvation, my eternal life, my Jesus, my redemption. To the contrary, note here that the blood of Christ purchased us For God, for Him, to serve His purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, we've already expressed it in verse 10. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign on the earth. Now, my dear friends, do you see what this is? This is the cross according to heaven. This is the cross set to music. This is the celebration of the Lamb for the gospel and all of its accomplishments. And of course, I must ask you at this point, is this what you're singing about? Is this indicative of the kind of music that you listen to, that you like, that you sing? Is this what they're singing about in your churches? Is this what we hear preached on the Lord's Day? The Lamb, the Lamb, the work of the Lamb. Is this what we find lining the shelves of our Christian bookstores? I mean, it breaks my heart, friends, when I come, to, I come across people who, 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 for all intents and purposes, are saying, we want to get beyond the cross. We want to get beyond the cross. They think the cross is important to get a person converted, but as it were, once a person kind of gets tipped in, in a kind of forensic way, well, then we can get beyond the cross to the things that are really important, like how to end sibling rivalry, or six steps to being a good employee. And we have failed to understand, dear friends, that the cross is central to everything. It's not only how I get in, it's how I live when I'm in there. The cross is central to everything. And so you hear people say, well, it's not practical, it's not relevant. To the contrary, I would beg you to understand, it is the most practical and relevant thing for your life. If Jesus Christ has not made this sacrifice, there would never be a single redeemed individual Heaven would be eternally empty of human beings. There would be no church. There would be no one with sins forgiven. There would be no gift of the Spirit poured out. And there would be no motivation to holiness. Why love my wife? 
I mean, Louis Farrakhan will tell me to love my wife. What is Christian about that? It's because how I emulate Jesus. It's because this is how he has loved me. If Jesus had not made this sacrifice, hell would have a no vacancy sign posted on its door. There is nothing more practical for your life than the gospel, and you must never, ever, ever allow yourself to think that you're beyond it. You're beyond it. You are never beyond it. Here, the highest order of angelic beings, the inner circle, worship the Lamb for his worthiness as defined by his accomplishments on the cross. Now, very quickly, notice the outer circle that responds in worship. Verse 11. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and of the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. Now, some of you have translations that kind of imply that we um, <clears throat> do a little multiplication here. Hmm, let's see. 10,000 times 10,000. That makes 100 million. 1,000 times 1,000. That makes 1 million. Okay, we have 101 million angels here. I wonder where John found the time to count them. No, don't be silly, friends. John doesn't want you to do the multiplication. He wants you to be overwhelmed by this apocalyptic number that conveys the idea of, of, of innumerable angels. But now again, most importantly, take note of the content of their song. They said with a loud voice... By the way, all the music in the book of Revelation is loud. Uh, more music in the book of Revelation than any other book of the Bible except for the Psalter. And one of the characteristics of the music in the Revelation, it is loud. They said with a loud voice, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy. Now that's the issue, beloved. It always is. In all of created history, it is the single most significant event. It is the apex of the ages to which everything ultimately aims or from which everything else is subsequently determined. The cross of Jesus Christ. And to this slain lamb, the outer circle of worship, uh, the, the outer circle of angels ascribes this worship. Note, the lamb who was slaughtered is worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Now let me ask you, look at that list. What's the difference between power and strength? Can you distinguish the difference between honor and glory? Are there synonyms, friends? Now, there are nuances to be sure, but the point you see is not that we read into each one an entire heritage of meaning that distinguishes it from all of the others. All of these seven excellencies, by the way, are governed by one article, which means that this entire phrase is to be understood as one single expression of the Lamb's kingly worthiness. What's more, this recital contains seven excellencies, sevens all through the revelation, an indication that his worthiness merits the fullness of praise, the fullness of adoration. Given what this lamb has done, he deserves a perfection of praise, all there is to give, which then introduces us to what we now see. In what one writer has called an unparalleled fortissimo of adoration and praise, 
the cosmic crescendo now reaches its climax that encompasses the entire universe. It began with the inner circle. It extended to the outer circle. Now watch as the entire cosmos responds in worship. Verse 13. I heard every creature in heaven, on earth, under the earth, on the sea, and everything in them say... Blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. Now, there is a sense, friends, in which this partakes of what has sometimes been referred to as Hebrew nature poetry. In the Old Testament, we frequently read that nature joins in worship. So, for example, we read that the hills dance. Uh, that the trees clap their hands, that the mountains sing. In the genre of Hebrew poetry, it's a way of saying, this event is of such significance, nature itself can't help but join in praise. This, however, is one step better. Here it is the assertion that the entire universe of animate, intelligent creation is joining in praise to God. And thus, you see, as you consider chapter 4 and chapter 5, we have come full circle in this celebration of praise. In the hymn that appears at the end of chapter 4, God is praised for being the creator of everything. Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things, and because of your will they exist and were created. All things have their existence because of him. Thus, he deserves the praise of every created being. But such is not the case at the present moment, is it? Human rebellion has disrupted this praise that the creator is worthy to receive. Now, the creation defies. It deteriorates. It dies. Moths die. Elephants die. Stars die. Trees die. We die. Everything dies. And God is not praised as he is deserving of. What is it that reverses the effects of the curse? The slaughter of the lamb. And what is the consequence of that slaughter? Defiled slaves, people like us, are transformed into a kingdom of priests who will one day lead the remainder of the entire universe, including, as I understand it, all reprobate people and angels in exalting the worthiness of the God who created and the Lamb who redeemed. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion to the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. My dear friends, there is no hall of fame in the Bible. There is no catalog of super saints. There is only one who is worthy The lowly God who as a lamb died a violent death in sacrifice for the likes of you and me. This is the cross according to heaven. And so I'm compelled to ask you this morning. 
where do you stand in proximity to this cross? Where do you stand in relationship to this cross? Where do you stand in relationship to the Lamb? Are you near to Him? Do you worship the Lamb? Do you adore the Lamb? Do you follow the Lamb wherever He goes? Do you exalt the Lamb? Or have you gotten over the Lamb? Bored with the Lamb? Indifferent about the Lamb? Wondering why in the world we would ever have a conference about the Lamb? Are you among His people? Have you experienced the benefits of His outpoured life? Do you talk of the cross? Do you think of the cross? Do you sing of the cross? Do you live your life according to the cross? Do you find yourself strangely motivated by the cross? Does the cross mean everything to you? If it doesn't, then I must say to you this morning, as a proud sinner, you need a humble God. Here he is. Forsake your sin. Turn away from all of the competitors that seek to beguile you away from the God of the cross. Never get beyond the cross. Never give up the cross. Rest on the cross. Rely upon the cross. Stake your life upon the cross. Trust in the song of heaven and join in the chorus of those who exalt the Lamb and his accomplishments on the cross. This is what they're singing about in heaven right now. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slaughtered and you redeemed people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. This is the cross according to heaven. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we adore you. We love you. <coughs> we join with the heavenly worshipers this very day, acknowledging you as creator, as the one on the throne praising and adoring your son, the lamb who has been slaughtered, the one who has purchased us for you, making us to be a kingdom and priests. Our Father, the cross is everything to us. The lamb is everything to us. And may, may we be resolved as we think about what we do in worship, as we think about what we sing, as we think about what we talk about, as we think about handling your word, cause us, O oh Lord and God, that central to, to see that central to everything is the glory of the Lamb, the lion from the tribe of Judah who conquered as a slaughtered lamb. 
we love you. Father, on behalf of these young men and women, for your own glory, I beg of you now. Draw them to the worship of the Lamb. 